0: Welcome to The New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, service, and the inner life. Join us now for part four of our four-part conversation with Brother David Stendelrast and Michael Lerner as they explore Brother David Stendelrast's spiritual biography. Welcome back, Brother David.
1: Thank you, Michael.
0: We have this wonderful community of friends with us. Uh, Cheryl Patton, Susan Braun, Kira Epstein... Gary Idell, who is a board member of uh, the, one of the founders. Of of the founders. Uh, Jennifer Stoll, is here. Um, and so I wanted to open it up. I've been very selfish in asking all the questions, but I wanted to open it up to any questions that um, each of you might have. Susan Ron.
2: Um, I'm real intrigued with how you've talked about the, the Christ and Jesus and how they come together and how you look at them separately. And I wonder if you would talk about that in the context of the sacrament of communion or the Eucharist mm-hmm. and how that comes together or, or doesn't, I guess, in, in the sacrament.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. more and more in my growing up and my development uh, what has become important to me in the Eucharist is the common meal that it is a common meal and that continues the practice of Jesus who who Ate with everybody. That was uh, totally unheard of at his time. Um, you ate with the good people and you made every effort to avoid the bad people to eat with. And there was a whole uh, pyramid of from very good to very bad and all the different shades in between. And you were trying to. With the good ones. One really should go back to our mystic experiences, and in those experiences, two aspects always come together. And uh, Rudolf Otto, who wrote about this famous book, The Holy, uh, calls it uh, the that which the tremendous fascinosum, that which makes you tremble, which overawes you. So these experiences often involve something that overawes you. It causes you to fear, and it fascinates you at the same time and attracts you. And the image that always comes to mind for these two movements is the child that uh, when you watch a little child at the seashore, it's so fascinated with the ocean and it runs to the water and then the waves come in and it gets scared and it runs away and often even cries. Then turns around and sees the waves go back and runs all fascinated again towards the ocean. And these two movements are there in every one of our mystic experiences. And they need to hold one another the balance because if you only emphasize the, that which overawes you, uh, you get a spirituality of purity. You want to live up to the standards of this holy, of this overawing divinity. You see? And so uh, that was overemphasized at the time of Jesus. And so you had this uh, a whole spirituality of pure and impure and all the shades in between, and uh, (coughs) many of these purity laws were so demanding that poorer people couldn't keep them, they just couldn't keep them. And that's why the really poor people like shepherds, for instance, they were just uh, uh, non-existent practically in that society, and the sick ones were also considered because of the sick, they were impure, and women were so um, impure because of their menstruation, that was considered impure. So you get all sorts of really uh, damaging, socially damaging uh, results from emphasizing too much this uh, aspect of of the awe inspiring divine in, in the mystic experience. And so Jesus emphasized the other side this familiarity, this, this closeness to the divine, this what attracts us, fascinates us. And that leads to a, a culture of compassion. Uh, it's not either or, because both is in this experience, but you will express uh, your honoring of this overawing divinity by being compassionate you see by being compassionate. it's not either or it's, it's both it's, it's integrated and so jesus emphasized that through eating with everybody and the eating is that process where you give thanks for the gifts of god everything is gift commonly together you give thanks and that is what they remembered about him, that he ate with everybody and gave thanks and he broke the bread shared it with everybody and gave thanks and that is what we still do in the Eucharist, so Jesus is very much present because that's how they remembered him Uh, and if we emphasize this common meal uh, we will not far into this uh, hocus-pocus mentality. When exactly does it become the body of Christ? (laughs) To begin with, this is taking poetry literally. This is my body. Anybody who has a sense of of poetry can understand it. I give myself to you. We are all one body. It makes perfectly good sense. When you start analyzing, it is as if your lover says to you, I will give you my heart, and you start analyzing until you come to heart surgery. It it makes no sense whatsoever. So uh, we need to put the whole Eucharistic mystery... uh, Last Supper into a completely new, uh, in, a, in the truly original context, I was going to say in a completely new, completely new because we had forgotten it. And we, we put all this emphasis, when does it become the body of Christ and how long does it stay the body of Christ? We were actually talking about these things in, in, in uh, when we studied theology and sacramental theology. That when the digestion sets in, when does it stop to be the body of Christ? And if little uh, little crumbs fall down are they the body of Christ, what happens if a cat, if a mouse eats a consecrated host? Those were all questions. They were sort of half humorous. We used to say, when a mouse eats a consecrated host, what you're to, supposed to do is, tie a stole around them, a cat uh, but uh, in, not like a priest stole but like a deacon stole because it's the deacon that is to handle the Eucharist and then chase her after the mouse <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: but, uh, <laughs> the, the point is let's look at this with a bit of common sense not uh, yeah. theological speculations where one for out speculation, built on another for out speculation, this is makes sense to everybody. He eats with them and says, "This is my body, and we are all one body, and and we celebrate that. And if we do it in that sense, then we are really continuing what Jesus did and eat all of it. He's explicitly eat all of it, and you can't exclude anybody. If you exclude anybody from it, you have already ruined the symbol." Uh, and uh, but it is also the celebration of the christ in all of us you see because the unity is that self and we all have only one self we have many many eyes each one of us is a very unique person but our self when you come to the self is one self when you go into yourself and you discover what is yourself it's that which can watch you, I can watch my eye, I can watch myself sitting here, you can watch yourself, uh, the observer, that is the self. And as long as there's somebody who observes the observer, we are not yet there. But when you get to the point where you find within yourself that observer that's not observ- is observing everything, is not observed by anybody, that's yourself. And that is the Christ self within us if we understand correctly. And that's one for all of us. Paul says, I live, yet not I, Christ lives in me. Each one of us can say that, well, that's this one Christ, the Buddha nature or uh, Atman or whatever you want to call it, is within us all. And we celebrate that in the Eucharist. And Jesus celebrated it already. But he also celebrated, and that's an important aspect of the Eucharist, he celebrated the kingdom of God which means sharing, non-violence, and, uh, and, no, and equality, those three aspects. Sharing and through the sharing, healing, because people were healed, they got self-respect when you share with them, not, all one level, not, not this pyramid of power, and uh, non-violence. Whoever takes up the sword, will perish by the sword. So, we, we know very clearly that Jesus was nonviolent, violent egalitarian, and was for sharing, for economic equality. And the earliest, the earliest church in Jerusalem tried to imitate that. Uh, and that is why he got uh, executed. He wasn't executed uh, as a, sometimes it's presented because he made himself the Son of God. Uh, that was a religious blasphemy and he would have been executed by stoning. but crucifixion was for political offenders. and so he was clearly a political offender because he this is exactly uh, flies right into the face of the power structures that we have inherited and that were then enforced by the Romans together with the ruling authorities of of the Holy Land and are now enforced everywhere. It's the power structure, uh, which uh, consists in the pyramid, not in equality, but in the pyramid, and you try to get higher and higher, uh, and and instead of equality, uh, force. It's completely uh, what we call common sense. It's not common sense at all, but for most people, it's completely common sense. If somebody strikes you, strike them back. You know? Jesus says, Turn the other cheek, which is not be so meek you don't know, just turn the other cheek. It means to totally, this, uh, totally confuse them. Some, if you look very carefully, it's even If somebody strikes you on the right, on the left cheek, it says, if somebody strikes you on the left cheek, which is, no, on the right cheek, which is the backhanded. You can strike somebody on the right cheek only backhanded. And that was uh, the way in which men struck women and in which the parents struck children and you struck slaves and the Romans struck the Jews, backhanded on the left shoulder. And he says, when they do that, turn the right. And now he doesn't even know what hand to use, and he's totally confused at the moment. And if they ask you to go one mile, which they had the right, the Roman soldier, that wasn't just something invented. That happened every day that somebody uh, commandeered you to carry their bag for a mile, but they could only carry it for a mile. And when when the mile was over and they made you carry it longer, they were very severely punished, and we know from the records that it happened often, the Roman soldiers were punished. So after the mile is over, keep carrying it. Now this poor guy is going to be punished because you're carrying it back. You can carry it free out of your free will. So he, it was a, a way of nonviolent revolution, really, that he invented there, and and there are many other examples for this. So, the kingdom of God was a political statement against the the domination Uh, system—egalitarian, nonviolent, and sharing, sharing with everybody. Uh, uh, Even uh, the story of uh, of the multiplication of loaves Up to very recently, certainly the first half of my life, we never asked these questions. We we repeated really what we had heard for hundreds of years and nobody looked at it. Nobody really asked new questions. And now all of a sudden we ask new questions, we get very interesting new answers. Uh, A woman theologian, not quite sure who it was, I think it was Sandra Schneider's. she said about the multiplication of loaves. Read it once more, she said. Jesus says, How much, how many? They say, We are here in this deserted place and there's no place where we can buy food, so send them home. And he said, well, How much do you have with you? And they say, Well, we have a few fish and five loaves. Uh, he said, Make them sit down and share. Hmm? So he gives it out, and they all share, and all of a sudden they have so much that in the end they have several baskets full of fragments that they pick up. And, Sandra and then it says in the Gospel, and 5,000 men ate to say nothing of the women and children. And Sandra Schneider says, ah, which woman will take her children out into this deserted place and not take a little food along? This is unthinkable. So they did have food, it was just a matter of sharing it. And when he made them sit down and started sharing, they all started sharing, and all of a sudden there was that much. So it is very miraculous. It's a lot more miraculous than if it's this hocus-pocus, but it is a different kind of miracle, you see. And so we are asking these questions today, and that is very important. And that is also behind the Eucharist, the multiplication of loaves. Share and you will have enough. Mm
2: -hmm. Thank you.
1: Mm.
0: Other questions? Cheryl?
2: In in one of your books, you talk about uh, when Jesus is being crucified, and he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then you talk about how, with a great shout, he dies. And you talk about the element of surprise when you talk about the meaning of this event. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: I can't remember exactly uh, the passage uh, in which I wrote about it, but from what you say now, um, first of all, uh, what comes to mind is that uh, we really have to experience that. We have to listen as if we heard it there and not just, we've heard it so many times and now we make some thoughts about it we have to get into it we have it in order to understand it uh, Roshi used to say to us you are like you in the west are like people that go into the shower and put an umbrella up You you say you want to understand, but you really want to overstand. You want to see get wet. You can't understand swimming until you get into the water. So you can't understand things like that until you really let yourself into it. And um, Sasaki Roshi uh, was invited to give a retreat uh, to the monks at Gethsemane, to Thomas Merton's monks, but that was after Merton's death. He said, "What did you? he asked the monks, what did Jesus say? Uh, what were the last words of Jesus? And the monk said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, just like you said it now? And I said, no. And then he yelled out as if he were hanging on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he, they all said, it's just ran cold over their backs when they heard him yell yell it out like that. So he had really gotten into it, and he was challenging these monks, don't just think about it, experience it, get into it, you see. And when you allow yourself that, then is the great surprise. God is always surprised. That is one of my favorite sayings. that... Uh, the only name that really fits God is surprise because every other name boxes God in. But when you call God surprise, then it leaves it open. And and God is surprised. But we experience that in life. We experience God through life, and life is surprising. If it isn't surprising, it's not alive. It's mechanical. So uh, the surprise, the last and ultimate surprise is Apparently, for Jesus, at least under that perspective, that he experiences, my God, as I envisaged you, uh, why have you forsaken me? And that makes suddenly room for the great surprise, which is always surprise. God is always surprised. So anything that we can envisage of God is not God. That would be one of those aspects, I guess, of the surprise that I had in mind there. And even uh, Jesus, obviously, had to experience that.
0: Kara?
2: So, I was interested, particularly when you were talking about one of your early peak or mystic experiences, I think when you were living with your mother out in the country and you were talking about uh, the spring that you had a mystic experience at a spring? Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. So, and then you said something about the wholeness in nature. And you have such a unique way of expressing yourself. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why it seems so common for people to have mystic experiences in nature.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well... Uh, by definition uh, an essential aspect of uh, what we call a mystic experience is the awareness of belonging of of limitless belonging and very often in our daily lives, especially nowadays, we sort of cut ourselves off and uh, nature is somewhere out there and and we don't really belong to nature and so forth. And if at the moment we are really drawn into that and experience our belonging to nature, uh, then that uh, makes an enormous impact on us. Uh, Not all of these mystic experiences come in nature at all. Many reports of picking out experience, for instance, several times with music, that I hear music or, or that we're singing together, music is, for me, a very strong trigger for this experience. But uh, that aspect of belonging, of that limitless belonging, that comes out particularly strongly when you are in nature, and, uh, and it can uh, take... Um, In one uh, case, when I was a little boy, I was only, I think I was seven at the time, and we were at night going, I was with a friend, and we were going out catching these May bugs. In May in Austria at that time, there were just thousands and thousands of of these big bugs at night on the apple blossoms, and they were eating the apple blossoms. So the farmers were very happy if you made yourself a, a... some twigs on a long stick and you knock them off and you fill buckets with them and then they were fed to the chickens so the organic chicken food Uh, and while we were doing it I remember that was again out in nature and at that hour I was really out in nature or hardly ever so it was already dark and we were out in nature this orchard and the fragrance of this orchard it was I was imbibing on it and it, it threw me into a kind of uh, uh, Dionysian uh, wildness we, we were hunting these bugs. and I felt this really this Dionysian uh, wildness I can only say. Uh, and, and that was another way of being really part of nature, not just sort of sweet and nice, and, but all oh, this, this wildness that's in there. Uh, and uh, Rachel Carson says, uh, in wildness is the uh, preservation of the, of the world. She, she means uh, usually a different, take this to mean a different slant of wildness, but that wideness part belongs to it we are, we are animals uh, we, and uh, until we accept that we can't transcend it at yeah, first somewhere transcend, accept it and I'm very happy that I <laughs> had such a uh, vivid awareness of being an animal <laughs> children are always animals but they're not always so aware of it <laughs> Jennifer
2: I'm not sure what I want to ask or how, but but I want to say something which is how touched it, touching I think for all of us it's been to be with you today. Thank you. And and for me to see how much joy there is in your telling of your journey and what you believe. Which isn't just articulated words about joy, but it inhabited. It just comes out of you. So, Michael and I have often had a back and forth about pain and suffering and sin and joy and the difference between the two and how important each is on the path. But I'm just wondering, given the baggage that sometimes comes with spirituality and religion around suffering and sin and guilt, how you manage to seemingly have a North Star of joy?
1: Mm-hmm
2: or is that true and how did that come to be?
1: Well, that is a very, very difficult question and I can't say that I have the answer, but we, we have to, at each stage of our life, uh, have some sort of an answer and then hopefully go to an, another level. And my present level, these are really two different questions, one suffering and one, uh, what did you call it? Did, you didn't use the word evil. Right?
0: Sin. Sin, sin, sin. and yeah. That's
1: quite sin. Uh, the destructive, the life-denying, the destructive aspect of life. <clears throat> so at the present moment, uh, with regard to suffering, I learned that fairly early on in monastic life. I think that was one of the teachings we received as monks, that you can suffer with the grain or against the grain. And when you suffer with the grain, uh, that belongs to life. Uh, or when you, suffer the, when you bear the pain with the grain, it's not really suffering. Uh, when you go against the grain, you get all these splinters into your hands, and that is suffering. So, uh, uh, pain belongs to life. We wouldn't even know what uh, pleasure is if we didn't know pain. It belongs to life. Uh, And it's unavoidable. But suffering is optional. And you can make up your mind, I will bear the pain with the grain. I will go with it. It teaches you something. It belongs to life. That's what it is. You get sick. Well, right now I'm sick. What is this the opportunity for? And then you go with it. But if you uh, you spend your energy, say, why me? And why at this time? And this is the worst time to get sick. And All this energy should go into healing instead of <laughs> rebelling against what is. Well, you can't change it any, anyway. See? And that is the real uh, suffering. So this is how I see it now. And with regard to the life-destructive forces around us, sin, and and we are more and more aware of it every day, how how strong that is. But (coughs) I uh, am so overwhelmed by the awareness how everything hangs together with everything, how everything is of one piece. That is I've experienced that. We have all experiences in our peak experiences, mystic awareness. That must stand. I'm not going to let that go. So everything hangs together. So I'm not going to set up a duality between the good and the bad. That just doesn't work. So I have to find a solution. How is that sin? How is the life-denying? possible within the whole, and not black and white, and not duality. And at this present stage in my life, as I see it, I try to look at it as the not yet
0: good. You're listening to a conversation with Brother David Steindl-Rast and host Michael Lerner.
1: I try to look at it with the mother's eyes. The mother looks at the child and sees many things that are <laughs> not at all good. You see, But she always says, oh, he will outgrow it and he will learn and he just doesn't know yet and so forth. So he looks and that way of the mother looking at you gives you the space into which you can grow. It creates the space in which you can become what you are, really. And so I hope that with this way of looking at the pain and, and the suffering and also the uh, evil and life-denying events in life, by looking at it, I can uh, help create that space into which the world can get go up and get better. It's the not yet good. I keep Telling myself that. And it's very difficult with um, exploitation and war and oppression and uh, mistreatment of uh, um, ch- child soldiers and girls sold into slavery and uh, all these things that happen in our world. And, and even in our country, uh, banks. Uh, betraying their clients and and all that, ruining their lives totally and so forth. Terrible things that happen. But it doesn't make it any better if I set up a duality and fight against it or something like that. By saying it's not yet good, how can we make it better? That immediately is the next thing. How can we help it? Not fight against it, but how can we help it? just like a mother says about the child how can i help him go out of that new bad
0: habit mm-hmm. <laughs> Gary. yes uh, brother david about 12 years ago around the year 2000 he wanted to reach out to many more people and you came up with this idea of using the internet and you started a website Gratefulness.org. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Ah, oh, yeah. And uh, you were very much involved in that at the very, very beginning. You flew all the way up to Oregon because uh, our webmaster, then a very young man, was studying up there and uh, in college, and uh, so he had a break, and Gary uh, and uh, Gary came up. And we discussed the possibilities, and and the website grew out of that. And I'm very happy. I think that was one of the most important things that uh, I was able to help facilitate in my life, because at this point, uh, which is only um, not even 12 years later, uh, every single day we have 10,000 people, not clicks, but 10,000 people come to the website, from between eighty and a hundred countries, and we had to translate it in many languages. We have started a separate Chinese website, a separate Spanish one just recently, and a separate German one, an English one, and uh, the, uh, the the English one is the biggest and fullest. But we have uh, really reaching many many people, and they write in, and we. we learn from them, how much it means to them, uh, how much gratefulness changes their lives, and basically how much joy it gives to them, because it is the key to joy. Uh, If if we are grateful, we have discovered the key to that happiness which doesn't depend on what happens. Because we all know people to whom everything happens that should make you joyful, and they are not joyful because they are not grateful. They always want something else or want more. And then we all know people who have nothing but what could consider trouble, and yet they are really joyful in the midst of it all. pain, suffering, dying, because they are grateful for, moment by moment, the opportunity, that is always the key thing, opportunity. You're always grateful for opportunity, but most of the time it's the opportunity to enjoy. And how often, percentage-wise, it is the opportunity to enjoy, we know this only when we begin to be grateful. Because When you start now, tomorrow you'll find twice as many opportunities to enjoy than you found today. They, they multiply under your hands. And, uh, we have now, it's coming, just coming, an app on our website, where every time you are grateful, you, you click and you plant a little seed and a little flower springs up, and then it's a bud, and then up top. and up. And you can even take a picture and you write something in for which you are grateful. And that's all being developed even in Chinese now. <laughs> but when you become aware of the, of the many opportunities to enjoy, Then, when the opportunity comes up, this is certainly not an opportunity to enjoy, hmm? you will ask yourself spontaneously, well, what is it the opportunity for? And that makes you enormously creative, you see? Gratefulness makes you so creative because you learn to focus moment by moment on the opportunity. uh, and, uh, and take advantage of the opportunity, use the opportunity. That is probably the most important aspect of the website that we have helped and are helping so many people to uh, discover that. But it's also uh, to discover community um, because they help one another, they write to one another, and for many people, from what they write in, um, get countless messages every day, uh, they say, Often they are alone, all alone, have no more relatives, they've all died, or they are shut ins, or something like that. And they is the web community, that's my community. And when their pet dies, uh, dozens of people send them condolences over the, uh, and light a little candle for their pet by name, and so forth. So it's really touching how the Someone from Australia will write to someone in Scotland because their their cat died and, and, and support them. in it. This kind of uh, internet use of the internet is really, to me, what de Chadin foresaw as the noosphere. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> just like we have an atmosphere; we have a noosphere that was just beginning to. Uh, he never knew the internet, yeah. but. Uh, But that is, I think, the fulfillment, uh, at least our present stage of this fulfillment, that we are one. And that is why it's so important to use something like our website, www.gratefulness.org, to uh, promote that community, that worldwide community. Nothing could be more Mm -hmm. important than that. And it overcomes that fear of loneliness. Mm -hmm. Loneliness and fear, that's our little ego. And the self is not lonely because it's just oneself. You know, one self. And, and that's always the one thing that, that I like to say fear not. You know? That's the most important message. And we get that across, I think, through the internet too, through, through our website. The people hear it over and over fear not, fear not. Every angel in the Bible the first word is fear not and I say I ask people what do you think what is the most repeated command in the Bible and everybody thinks love your neighbor it is fear not many many times repeated scores of times and I say it's probably because angels are messengers and they get the most important message out first and the first thing is fear not when you are not fearful, then the verse is already over. Then, from here on, positive. And that's the opposite of faith, fear. And faith is that trust in life. And to encourage that, that's common to all. No human being could grumble with that. We have to have trust in life, or else we're lost. And life does it for us. Anthony often asked me, uh, I think one of his teachers started uh, that question do you think you have life or life has you and it's a very difficult question and leads to many deep insights I, I think we speak as if we had life my life I take my life in my hands or I risk my life or I lose my life or things like that but basically my life does everything within me my life makes me alive I couldn't even stop breathing if I wanted to. My life digests my lunch, and my life does all these things which I can't possibly do by thinking about it. I don't know. How to do it? So to entrust yourself to life like that fearlessly, that's also something that we try to promote through the website.
0: Thank you. Thank you all. Brother David, there's so much that we could turn to I feel even though you've been so generous with your time, we've just barely scratched the surface of the thinking that you've done. Uh, It seems to me um, one of the places that might make sense to go at the end here is uh, your long-standing concern with the ecological crisis. um, And um, your sense... uh, that the religions and spiritual traditions have a a special responsibility and you ask uh, what traditions will respond to the needs of our time you talk about how institutions exist to serve life and if they cease to serve life then they've lost their purpose Um, and you talk about how working in your own tradition to rediscover it uh, is is a wise way to go for those who are able to do that. You talk about when you speak of a common sense spirituality, uh, you do this wonderful thing where working both with uh, proverbs from around the world and uh, common sayings from around the world, but also in the simple language that you've developed, uh, you point out that uh, Christ, for example, with his parables uh, didn't speak from the authority of the religious uh, leaders. He didn't speak on his own authority. In his parables, he referred to the authority within his listener and that it was that that common sense uh, which you then connect with Sophia, with divine wisdom at its highest level. So again and again, you take these very powerful traditions and reinterpret them, repurpose them as you would say go back to their roots in some sense rediscover them with a freshness that at least for me allows me to um, to see with fresh eyes what the purpose of some of these things have been. There's, in connection with the ecological crisis, there's also, going back to your early experience reading the the rule of uh, St. Benedict, um, where you discovered this uh, keeping death before your eyes in order to live fully, and uh, the Benedictine prayer at night for a good end. Um, And... You talk about dying in life um, as as a skill that uh, is practiced in many traditions. Um, but also, quoting Rilke, you point out that it's not just a human being that can die, but a world can die. Mm-hmm. And how is it in this time that we can practice death and life, but also have the courage to walk out into a world that at some biological level is clearly dying, and yet do so without despair and without cynicism. Mm. So I thought we might explore both the personal meaning that you give to death, and also the question of how to live in the midst of a holocaust of life. Mm.
1: Mm. Uh, you formulated that in a very powerful way, uh, holocaust of life, I've never heard that expression, but it's so true, that's that's what I see going on all around us, and especially when you travel a lot around the world, you, you encounter it everywhere, it's very painful. Um, the, uh, the first um, lesson that I take from it for myself is not to, uh, to think too much about the future, uh, what is going to happen, when it is going to happen, and all that. But first, find that within yourself, which is beyond time, that now, about which Eckhart Tolle has written very eloquently and I very much appreciate his work and uh, gratefulness about which we spoke a lot is also one way of getting into the now because you can only be grateful now you can't be grateful later because when you're grateful it's always now so to practice grateful living, to practice practice gratefulness uh, means that you are always in the now and to root yourself in that now elevates you beyond time. So whatever time brings and whenever time is up for me personally, uh, that has no uh, impact on now. Because now is not in time, time is in in the now. Now is eternity, the now that doesn't pass away. So when my time is up, and that's the definition of death, then I still have to be um, rooted in the now, and in the self, and, and, and that last, that is. That is what, I, what is, is now. All is always now, says T.S. Eliot. So that is the first step. Mm-hmm. But it would be very irresponsible to stop there. Now you have to do something to see that this beautiful... Uh, a blue-green uh, planet has a chance to survive, mm. just as you have to find a way of dealing with your own death. Sooner or later, your time is up, you know that, so you have to find a stance with regard to that. Sooner or later, uh, the Earth and the whole universe will also be up, you know that, a mm-hmm. long time, we hope, but uh, you have to do sh- something to Uh, cultivate and and nourish your own personal life and the life of the planet. And there, uh, we have to listen very carefully to people who study the situation and tell us what can we do individually. And uh, one of the things that I'm always uh, deeply moved by is uh, that uh, really quite unanimously uh, people who are in the know-how tell us that the strongest leverage that each one of us has is with regard to eating less meat. Uh, It's so strange, people won't believe that, but uh, meat-eating uses so much more water, and, and in this present crisis in which we live which we, every drop of water and people who can is so valuable and people who conscientiously turn off the faucets and maybe take a shower rather than a uh, than a uh, bath so and they're still not aware that 1 pound of meat 1 pound of beef on your plate uses as much water until this 1 pound gets on your on your plate, it has used as much water as an average person uses in a whole year to take showers. It's that water-intensive. So if one learns that, if one informs oneself, and, uh, it doesn't mean that you turn overnight into a vegetarian, but if you only eat every other day meat, or if you, if you skip one day a week, it's better than mm-hmm. another at all. Less meat, less meat. This is where we really have the, the, uh, the leverage. Uh, I've read that uh, uh, the uh, damage to the environment that is done by the planes, all the airplanes, and all the cars together is far less than by the meat industry because the uh, gases from, from, from uh-huh. the dung and so forth is. Uh, um, um, really damaging the ozone layer. So one has to inform oneself. Fortunately, that is easy today. There are many good books about it. And then find that little niche where you can have the strongest impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a great uh, sinner with regard to um, ecological footprints because uh, of all that air travel. It's not so mm-hmm. good. So I have to try and upset it. Uh, a little somewhere otherwise. But they're talking nowadays about the footprint and the handprint. Everybody knows they speak about the ecological footprint and that's what the damage you cause. The handprint is how you upset it. What do you do with your hands? Are you just prevailing the fact that you're having a footprint? Do something with your hand to upset that footprint. And there are many things that, that, that we can do proactively and it seems to me very important to do that mm-hmm. out of uh, a gratefulness, uh, really out of a sense spirit, deeply spiritual sense of being grateful for this beautiful earth that we have inherited and the more grateful you become, the more you see how beautiful it is. Mm-hmm. Many things that I used to pass by I now have opened my eyes for it I see easy in this beautiful surroundings here, but everywhere you can see it and, and Uh, Keep that hand
0: in We've worked for 26 years with cancer patients at Commonweal, at our center. Uh, We've done 165 week-long retreats with them. And uh, so the question of how one faces death at an individual level is very fundamental. And fundamental for us. And you said some things about that that struck me as unusually clear you talk about learning to die while you're healthy and conscious so that if you're sick and disabled where it may be more difficult to practice mm. it um, you have at least the experience of learning it when you're when you're better
1: yes.
0: for for someone facing death, could you describe that process more clearly for me?
1: Well, if somebody is facing death and still well enough, uh, then that would apply when I say, uh, die when you are alive, because when you are dying it's too late. Uh, learn it now, because dying in English very significantly uh, it has only an active voice. It has no passive voice. You can't say, I'm being died. When you're being died, you come out green and blue, but not dead. So, uh, it, it, dying is something that you have to do. Language teaches us that. And and I b- believe very much you spoke about uh, re, what do you call it, words, re... Mm, re-purposing, repurposing words. Repurposing words, uh, repurposing language, Another way of speaking about it is Heidegger saying uh, to think along language. Mm. Think along the path that language has laid. And if language doesn't allow you to use the passive voice, then language, there's a lot of wisdom that has gone into forming the language in this way. So I say, dying is something that you have to do. and uh, You have to let, let go. Uh, Marion Finch, who also gives uh, lots of talks and has helped many people, and she told me once that her mother was dying, and and, uh, she sat with her mother and she said, Mom, are you afraid of dying? And, and the mother said, no, Marianne, I'm not afraid. I just don't know how to do it. Can you tell me how to do it? <laughs> so she said, gee, I had never thought about that. And then she, so she lay down on the couch and she imagined what would, I have to, what would I have to do in order to be able to die. And then she said to her mother, I think you just have to let go, just let go. And the mother didn't say anything at the time, but the next day she said to her son, Johnny, fix me a cup of tea with lots of milk and sugar. Marianne has taught me how to die. I want to have a cup of tea and die. <laughs> she didn't die then and there, but she knew she had caught on and she eventually died peacefully. So it's this letting go. And that is what we can take in midlife and even in early life we can learn every moment to let go of the previous moment. And then become fully alive in the next moment. But most of us hang on to the previous moment, uh, bewailing that it's, it was so nice and it's no longer, or I'm the victim of it and what they have done to me or whatever. We hang on to the past or we hang on to the future. We want something and can't wait for it or we're afraid that it might happen and so forth. If you live in the now, then you let go of the past and of the future, and that is really the best preparation that I can imagine for dying, Mm -hmm. because dying happens at the moment when time is up, so you have to let it go, and nothing happens because you are in the now. Mm -hmm. So, uh, difficult for us to imagine how this will look, I have no idea what it will look like, I know that whenever I let go of the past, I come, I'm more alive in the present moment. So I can draw the conclusion that when I let go of everything that I have known, including my own body, I will be more alive than I was before. I'm in a different way, but, but it makes sense to me. Mm. And it, it gives me courage and gives me a certain reassurance. Nobody likes to die. You can't say that I'm looking forward to it. What everybody has managed so far who is very dead, so it should be possible.
0: In your in your eighty sixth year, what is surprising you now? What is um, what are you discovering that you didn't know before?
1: Oh more and more every day. That is really true. Uh, I've seen more and more surprising things. It's not at all as you might envi- envis- imagine when you are small and young, uh, that uh, there comes a time when you have seen everything and nothing surprises you anymore. The more, the older you get, in my experience, the more surprises you see all around you. They just go out of the woodwork. And uh, What surprises me most at this stage is how everything hangs together with everything, not only horizontally, so to say, but also vertically in the past. I think quite a bit about our ancestors. And way back, I, my relatives, my forebears that I still knew, my grandfather, I knew still two great grandmothers of mine. And I imagine if so much changed in my lifetime, what must they have experienced and and how, what was their childhood like, and then I go much further back and, and imagine in the middle ages how did they live and before then and I like to think about that, and what it does to me is it moves me very deeply it, it really moves me uh, that's the the best word i i can exp- uh, exp- by which I can express it. Uh, I'm easily moved by the pity, I think, is, is the word of compassion, but not compassion for somebody suffering, but feeling with, you know, feeling, compassion in the sense of sharing the feeling of people, way back and everywhere else in the world. Or when I uh, eat something, and see the food, I try. It's it's much easier for me now than—I don't have to make much of an effort, a little bit to remind myself, but to see from how many different places that food came, and all these people whom I'll never see who drove the trucks to bring them here, and they were away from their wives and children for so long, and they, just to transport that food, and here it is, and all for me is all a gift, and that makes tears come to my eyes. And, That is the most typical feeling that I have at this age. Really being deeply moved by how uh, actions of little people who lived long, long ago, of people who live now and who will never get to know, make it even possible for us to live one day longer.
0: Father David, thank you for this conversation.
1: Thank you. You were very, very kind and ah. so well-prepared, and I thank you very much for Thank already. you
0: Thanks so, so time. much. Thank you. thank you very, very much. Mm. You've been listening to a conversation with Brother David Stendelrast and Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to The New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website at the-new-school.org. That's the new school Dot .org Thank you for listening.